Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much to Liz and to Oxpeace uh, for the invitation. And uh, it's amazing to see so many people here on a sunny Saturday uh, morning, because sunny Saturday mornings, as we all know, are an extremely valuable commodity. Um, I'm going to give my take on this possible separation or elision between peace and conflict. And one might think that peace studies is one big happy family uh, in which everyone wears sandals, uh, has flowers in their hair, um, hugs trees, and has an acoustic guitar with a rainbow uh, strap. In actual fact, as has been alluded to before, it's a place of significant division, but because it's peace studies, that's okay. We're pretty consensual about that division. We're not brawling in the streets about it. But there is a danger that we can see peace studies or people who align themselves with peace studies being in, in two camps. And the first camp would be the problem solvers, uh, academics and policymakers who see a problem and want to solve it, um, who tend to be, according to their critics, less reflective or less critical of um, a certain assumptions about the acceptability and presence of war and conflict. And then on the other side, we might see in academia the critics, those who are influenced by critical theory, um, by post-structuralism, post-colonialism, etc. And what we see very often in academic contexts is that these two broad groups, and this is a caricature, but these two broad groups really are like ships passing in the night. They go to separate conferences, or if they're at the same conference, they go to separate um, panels, or they publish in different places. And when they think that no one is listening, uh, no one from the other camp is listening in the bar at the end of a long day conferencing, they might say um, things like, well, the critics are fine, but they never get anywhere. They're too woolly. They just have shopping lists of things that they want. Peace will never be attainable for them. Post-colonialism is simply navel-gazing. We've got work to do. And of course, the critics, when they think, none of the problem solvers are listening, might say, well, actually, those problem solving, problem solving scholars and practitioners, they claim that they do peace studies, but they don't. They seem to see a peace accord as peace, or a ceasefire as peace. Well, we know that it's not. They actually accept conflict, and they call it peace. So there is this division in our study. And I want to go on and, and um, in a sense, talk about how I embody that in my own uh, praxis and study and the difficulty that I have as a scholar in trying to reconcile these two ways of seeing the world. And it's a way, I, I, and these two ways are, I think, shared by many in the room. And the key for me is one of epistemology, of where one sits determines what we see in the world. So it's all about 
our ontology, how we are seeing the world and the methods that we adopt to try and figure that out. And I want to talk about two research projects that I'm, I'm involved in. And in both of these, I have to say, they're collaborative uh, research projects and other extraordinarily bright scholars at other institutions do the heavy lifting and I come along and tell a nice story about the research. So behind the research, there's a lot of other, other people. And the first research project is called the Peace Accords Matrix, PAM, which is a way of collecting data on 34 comprehensive peace accords that have been reached since the end of the Cold War. And within that, there's a huge amount of data to allow us to compare between peace accords and um, to drill down and see the detail of how peace is made. And in many ways, peace accords are official peace. They're top-down peace. It's peace made very often by men in conference chambers, in diplomatic capitals. It is, as I say, the official institutional peace. And if we look at peace accords over the past two decades, what do we see? Well, we see that the emphasis of peace accords is on security. 59% of all peace accord provisions or security related, whereas welfare or social issues come a poor second on 27%. So this top-down official institutional piece is predominantly about security. It's about stabilization. It might use the word peace, but it's about security. But of course, just having a peace accord provision doesn't tell us anything or doesn't tell us very much. We need to know about implementation. And if we move on to that, we see that the implementation of security-related peace accord provisions is privileged, or at least is easier managed, than social provisions. So almost 75% of all peace accord security provisions are fully or partially implemented within 10 years. It's 60% for the social or welfare provisions. And we see that implementation is highly dependent on institutions, on, in a sense, internationally sponsored institutions or capital city institutions. So power sharing in an assembly or a parliament, dispute resolution negotiations or mechanisms, or verification mechanisms. And these are accelerators of the implementation of an accord. So there's a lot of emphasis on these three um, types of structures or institutions. And we also can see, by looking at peace accord provisions and what is implemented, that this is a very liberal type of peace with the promotion of democracy, the rule of law. It tends to be quite samey. You read one peace accord, you've read very many of them. And it's almost predictable what peacekeeping, peace building and state building outcomes or programs and projects will follow. In a sense, if IKEA could do peace, it would be a standard peace accord with an Allen key and uh, impenetrable instructions. So that's how peace might be seen from top down, using top down data, using fairly 
orthodox methodology. And then let me flip and see what peace might look like from the bottom up, from a very different research project. And this project is called Everyday Peace Indicators. And we're trying to get community-sourced indicators of peace, security, and safety in three locations each in South Africa, South Sudan, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. And if you think about a lot of standard indicator projects, they use off-the-shelf indicators that, for example, the World Bank or the OECD might use. And they take those and go to the field and try and measure them. Or they might, you might get a group of pointy-headed academics together in a seminar room and brainstorm what the indicators might be. Our approach was simply to go and ask people in communities, what are your indicators? What's peace for you? And this is Evelyn um, in a, a village in northern Uganda uh, at one of our focus groups, um, writing down the various indicators that people identified. And once we uh, got the indicators, we turned them into a survey, which was done sometimes face-to-face, -face, sometimes using mobile phones. Now, mobile phones are the bane of my life at the minute. One of the things that I found with this project is that mobile phones go missing uh, in Uganda or, or Zimbabwe. They go missing a lot, which means that I have to go to a shopping center in Manchester and buy the cheapest mobile phones I can find and send them out to our project partners. This has drawn the attention of the police because apparently drug dealers also buy the cheapest mobile phones that they can get. Disposable mobile phones, which are called burners, they use them for a couple of hours and get rid of them. So the uh, uh, Manchester police asked me why I wanted, uh, why I was buying so many uh, cheap mobile phones. But anyway, that's an aside. Um, if I tell enough people, then you can be character witnesses for me at any trial. So what happened in our research? What did peace look like? Well, it's highly localized, hugely localized. It's about the city neighborhood. It's about the village. It's about the collection of huts. It's hugely gendered. gendered. Our male and female focus groups were very different in how they narrated and described Peace. Also, fascinatingly, we don't matter. Whether we are academics or whether we are NGO workers or uh, workers for international organizations, we're very rarely mentioned. In none of the hundreds of interviews and focus groups did I ever hear anyone say, well, actually, I was reading McGinty the other day. Um, and I, I have several, several critiques to make of his article. Um, in a sense, we don't matter, the international doesn't matter, yet there's a danger from our rather privileged position that we think that we do matter in terms of making peace and narrating peace. For most people, peace and safety was very prosaic. It was about getting the kids to school. It was about getting food to market. It was about getting to the, to the bus stop uh, and not fearing crime. And even though these countries were 
post-conflict or post-authoritarian, people tended to have moved on by that stage. In northern Uganda, the former rebels had been, or child soldiers, had largely been reintegrated. So it wasn't obviously post-conflict. And crucially, and I think that this, five, okay. I think this speaks directly to the topic of this panel. Crucially, people didn't make a distinction between peace, security, and safety. They didn't make that peace and conflict distinction. They talked about it as though it was one large masala, one large dish with all of the ingredients in it. So people narrated their lives moving from conflict and authoritarianism towards crime and insecurity. It was one long continuum in which people rarely mentioned, ah, there was the peace accord, or oh yes, there was the ceasefire. So this distinction that we might fret about and we might discuss actually didn't seem to be current or didn't seem to be alive with the people that we spoke with. So how do we get these top-down and bottom-up perspectives to speak to one another? Well, the best way to illustrate my difficulty is with an anecdote, which will only take 40 minutes. <laughs> the number one indicator that many people identified as their chief indicator of safety and security is this security device, the dog. Barking dogs are a sign of prowlers at night. People thousands of miles away identified the barking dog as the number one indicator. Indeed, we've just started the Everyday Peace Indicators Project in Colombia, and people are talking about barking dogs. Now, picture the scene. I somehow talked my way into the World Bank headquarters in Washington, and I was talking to a proper economist who uh, is highly respected and engages in, in indicator-type research, often using economic data as proxies for peace. And I was talking about barking dogs. If she had a button under her desk to call security and get the nutter out of her office, she would have done so. And it's a way of illustrating, in a sense, the difficulty of these two narrations of conflict or peace, getting them to talk to one another. It seems very difficult. And to be perfectly honest, my last slide is a slide that I don't really believe in. It's a sloganistic type slide. How do we get these two wings of our discipline to talk to one another? In a sense, if we go back to John's visualization of publications, how do we get all those wonderful dots in the scatter diagram to somehow merge. Well, things that I suggest we can do is think of different forms of research, whether it's on peace or conflict or top-down and bottom-up, to be complementary rather than competitive. That we should use mixed and multiple methods, and I know many of us in this room do. That we sh should try to break out of disciplinary silos. I mean, if we think about this word discipline, Think about its root and its origin. <clears throat> to be disciplined, it's not pretty when you think that our job is to be critical thinkers. We should look at processes 
as well as events. And I thought that, that David's presentation brought that point up incredibly well. And we should think about gender and human and conflict-sensitive research methodologies. But I think this is sloganistic. We probably all say that we do this, but at the end of the day, as scholars at least, and also possibly as practitioners, we're trapped in political economies of research that privilege certain approaches over others. So it is really difficult to, um, in a sense, escape. Yet, I'm optimistic. My thought from conferences, from classes, uh, from being an external examiner in many other institutions over the years, is that peace studies, peace and conflict studies, call it what you want, has never been more healthy. More publications, more people working on it. So I think we have grounds for optimism, and it's up to us to be the change that we want to be. Um, another slogan, I know, but I can't do much better on a Saturday morning. Thank you.